Hi, and welcome to the Imperfect Podcast. My name is Deb Crow, and I will be your host. Join me on this journey as we meet heart-centered leaders from all over the globe. Lots of interesting questions, interesting conversation, and find out what makes a leader. How do they handle uncertainty and complexity? How do they lead in a time that is volatile? Join us. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. And I am very, very excited this week to interview Dr. James Hart. I finally have someone with the surname Hart on the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. So how fun is that? Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. James. He has devoted his life to the study of the electrophysiological basis of advanced spiritual states. That sentence alone just shows me we're going to have an amazing heart-centered leadership conversation. Dr. Hart has traveled the globe in pursuit of his research and to India, especially to study advanced yogis with his technology. From Zen masters to Christian prayer, Dr. Hart has continued his relentless pursuit of advanced brainwave and meditation connections that allow people to become the best form of themselves to be included in many, many positive results that we're going to talk about. So Dr. Hart, welcome to the show. Deb, thank you so much. It's nice to be here with you. Well, as a, as a fellow neuroscience lover and geek and a yoga teacher, I cannot even tell you how, I am, how excited I am to, to meet you and chat with you about your work. So we'll dive right into some of my leadership questions. Sure. So you have devoted a lot of your life to this study. And I would love to know, where did this come from? Was there an experience or someone who was a mentor to you that gave you the love and, and kind of the, the intuition to pursue this? Tell us where all this came from. Uh, wonderful uh, and deep question. Th- thank you, Deb. Um, I was a physics major uh, at Carnegie Institute of Technology in Pittsburgh. Uh, and I had a very good friend who was a grad student in psychology at Duquesne University, also in Pittsburgh. They had a number of French Jesuit priests from France who were uh, teaching phenomenology. And uh, so this friend introduced me to, for example, the phenomenon of man by uh, Father Pierre Terre de Chardin, and uh, the philosophy of it, the intrigue began to grow. But as a physics major, one of the things that seemed lacking to me was any way to measure all this cool stuff that these philosophers were talking about. So I'm now in my senior year, uh, fall semester, uh, and I come out of the student union, and I'm confronted by a very large sign where every letter was hand-painted in a slightly different color. And it said, Dr. Joe Camilla will speak on brainwaves and consciousness. And it gave a time. I looked at my watch. It was 10 minutes away. It gave a location, Margaret Morrison College. It was just across the tennis courts. And I didn't have a class that hour, so I went. And 
uh, Joe Camilla had been visiting a woman a professor of painting and design. And her students were the only people there other than me. I was the only one who showed up from the engineering college. And it was, uh, to me, it was uh, uh, an answer to how do you make any measurements about consciousness? And uh, how can you make a science of this? So I was absolutely fascinated. I uh, waded through the mob at the end of the talk and told Joe Camilla that I came to San Francisco every summer where his lab was at UC San Francisco. And I was gonna come and see him at, you know, next summer after I graduated with a degree in physics. And so we began a correspondence. Meanwhile, every spare minute of my uh, life, I was in the library reading uh, the actually large literature on brainwaves that dated all the way back to Hans, her doctor, Dr. Hans Berger's discovery in 1908 of brainwaves. He actually went looking for brainwaves. Um, uh, and it's a fascinating story, I'll tell you. Uh, he, uh, when Rene Descartes dreamed up science, saying famously, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, um, that the rational way of thinking spread across Europe. Uh, and intuition really got pushed out for a while. Men weren't even supposed to or allowed to have intuition. It was women's intuition. And you had to be logical and rational all the time in order to be credible. If you didn't think you weren't being, you didn't even exist. However, this stiffening brush of logical positivism did not sink very deep into Bavaria, which retained mystical roots. And that's where little Hans Berger was born. When he grew up, he moved to Vienna, became a psychiatrist, and then the Austro-Hungarian Empire, fighting one of its endless wars against the Muslims in the Crimea, uh, conscripted him He was because uh, he was educated. He was made an officer and given a horse. And in one battle, he, his horse was shot, fell on and broke his leg. He spent many long months recovering in a military hospital. When he got back to Vienna, he called the family together to tell his story. Well, halfway through, his sister interrupted him, took him to her bedroom, opened her Tagebuch, her diary, and read to him everything that he had reported. Now, there were no cell phones in those days. And so all of a sudden, this Bavarian-born uh, psychiatrist suddenly believes in ESP. And he'd heard Volta in France was working with animal electricity. So he went looking for electric waves in the brain with super primitive equipment. I'll spare you the details, but the first waves he found were uh, where he called alpha. They weren't the fastest, they weren't the slowest, but they were the biggest and easiest to find with um, the very primitive equipment he was using. So uh, he kept it a secret for 10 years because he was all sure it was related to ESP, which it is, but with his primitive equipment, he couldn't uh, you know, demonstrate that. And then in 1918, he published, I read the first paper in German, took me quite a while because my technical German was not that good and I spent a lot of time with uh, dictionaries. Um, but then uh, brainwaves uh, recording spread across the world. It was a sensation. Oh my God, electrical waves in the brain. We got to measure these. So pretty soon hospitals and universities uh, all across Europe, Russia, then the Americas, uh, Canada, uh, Australia. And so this continued, and this is the literature that I read, but in 1962, 
Dr. Joe Camillo, who was a sleep researcher, had recently moved to San Francisco from University of Chicago. Uh, he accidentally discovered that people could voluntarily control their own brainwaves. And in April of 62, he made the first presentation. Well, uh, it was 67 when I uh, arrived after I graduated, it was probably uh, 66 when I first met him. <clears throat> then the year changed. Uh, I graduated in June, got on my Triumph motorcycle and rode up into Canada, took the Trans-Canadian Highway across the continent and then down I-5 to San Francisco. And I showed up at Joe's lab volunteering as a research subject. Now, he had had $100,000 a year grants from the military, DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, because his discovery triggered a lot of interest in how could we make better soldiers and sailors with uh, brain training. And so um, his heart really wasn't in that, um, but they were, they were supporting his lab and his research. And they had bought him a big PDP-15 mini computer. His lab was a sort of dilapidated house on the edge of campus, uh, sort of sinking into the sands. Um, and uh, the computer was in a downstairs bedroom. The cha feedback chamber was a closet off the bedroom lined with sound uh, tile. It had one three-digit Nixie tube display and an orange crate in the corner turned on in, held a torn speaker a big 10, 12 inch torn speaker that would fuzz out when the feedback sound got louder. And so I'm in this environment and it was the most fascinating thing I had ever done. Feedback on my brainwaves. Now, one of the totally cool things was there'd be a burst of alpha and my rational mind would leap at it. Like, what was that? How could I do that? How can I keep it going? And of course it would immediately go quiet. And then I'd settle down, there'd be another burst and my rational mind would jump on to try to analyze it. And so pretty soon I learned how to put that creature on a leash. So the tone would occur and it would want to jump at it and analyze it, but I could restrain it for maybe a half a second, which means the tone could swell louder. My scores would go up. And so with this, uh, I began what I later learned was a meditative practice. Loved it so much, I went back the next day, had another hour, next day, another hour. When I went back on the fourth day for more, they weren't doing any studies and I was so disappointed. But I had learned a little how the lab worked and Joe's San Francisco girlfriend, Joanne Gardner, uh, who became his wife, uh, was working there. She and I had become friends. So I went to her office and said, Joanne, would you take me downstairs, put a few electrodes on me so I can play? She said, well, sure. So she did put a few electrodes on me, put me in the closet and left, went upstairs, got involved in her work. Later, lunchtime came, and with nine other members of the lab, they went out to Chinese lunch with Paul Gorman's VW camper van, in which Paul and his wife had toured India the summer before. And it was in course 11 of a 12-course Chinese lunch when Joanne remembered, oh my God, there's somebody in the chamber, and they all rushed out of the restaurant, raced across town, ran up to the building, ran in, pulled open the door, and interrupted the late stages of a most incredible adventure, without which you and I wouldn't be here today talking. And so I had that out-of-body experience, ego disintegration. I was flying around the universe. I was meeting up with discorporate entities. And this was a lot for a Protestant fundamentalist physics major who had never even been drunk before.
So uh, yeah, that's that, how that I began. Great. That's a great story. That, that brings meditative alpha waves to a whole new level, James. Yes. Now, I named the podcast Imperfect because I truly believe that imperfection has a place in our life. It's something we frequent. So share with the listeners what imperfections you bring to your heart leadership. Well, um, I'm reminded of a story, um, um, possibly apocryphal story, about a, a Zen monk in Japan who uh, was fortunate to be at the recognized, the most beautiful temple in Japan. It was over a thousand years old. And uh, one morning, uh, when everybody got up for morning meditation, the beautiful temple had burned to the ground. It was smoldering ashes. And uh, the, 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 the Roshi asked if anybody knew what happened. And this one new young monk raised his hand and was asked to step forward. And he said, well, I burned it down. And everybody was aghast. And the, the Zen master said, why? He said, well, it had every perfection except impermanence. And so we strive for perfection, never attain it, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, perfection is a, is a curable disease at Biosavarnath. Being obsessed with the unattainable goal of perfection actually impairs people's performance. So when they stop being a perfectionist, they can come closer in approach to perfection. Absolutely. I, I love hearing this from your perspective because it's something I talk to my executive clients all the time and, and you've just beautifully segued into my next question. I know you've worked with Tony Robbins and some other high powered executives when I'm coaching executives, I like to teach them the benefits of meditation and how it helps them get to a mindset of equanimity. And I would love for you to share from your scientific medical research perspective, the, the beauty of meditation, the alpha waves and, and how that leads us to such a mindfulness state of clarity. And, and the benefits of that. So please share with us a story or an experience that, that you've witnessed with some of the executives you've worked with. Well, um, very cool. And you used the word segue, so I will uh, reply a segue. Um, you mentioned Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins yesterday accepted my invitation to present at the Global Consciousness Summit that Biosabrenaut and our nonprofit partner the Integrated Mind Research Institute will be hosting globally on November 21st. And so you might want to put that date in your calendar and, and let people know. Uh, we also are uh, seeking what one of our speakers is uh, Her Holiness Sacha Sai Ma. And she said she's going to reach out to the Dalai Lama and also to Thich Nhat Hanh. Um, and so uh, Tony Robbins is in, Prince Alfred von Liechtenstein is in. He's a winner of the Albert Schweitzer Award and 60% of those people eventually win a Nobel Peace Prize. And he's gonna speak on the seven levels of consciousness that you become aware of through lucid dreaming. And so 
uh, Reverend Michael Beckwith of Agape is going to be presenting at this Global uh, Consciousness Summit. And um, so there is a, an interesting story. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I presented at a, a virtual summit headquartered in Japan that uh, Saimad uh, organized last week. And I showed from zero to $200 million in two years. And the brainwaves were exceptional because he had big frontal theta, which allowed him to access the Akashic records simultaneously with big occipital alpha, which enabled him to take those insights and creatively apply them in the real world. And so most people, it's either alpha or theta. And in order to go to theta, they have to get drowsy, go near sleep, and the alpha goes away. Well, this man had learned how to run big alpha and big theta simultaneously in different parts of his head. And he used this gift to um, grow a company from zero to $200 million in two years. Uh, there's another uh, story about unusual brainwaves. And, and I might add that BioCybernaut is different from many of the neurofeedback providers who begin with brain mapping in which they can measure your brainwaves and they compare it to a normative database. And if you should dare to differ from the C student, the average, they will immediately want to train that giftedness out of you. So if a Zen master went to one of these sessions and said, oh my God, you have too much alpha, we've got to get rid of that. You've got to be more like the average. And so um, both of these men uh, uh, were very, very different from the average. This man, the second story, came in and it was like his head was on backwards. 80% of humans have their biggest alpha at the back of the head in the occipitals. And um, this man had the biggest alpha at his frontals. And I looked at his brainwaves, uh, we're in interviewing at the end of his first day. And I said, wow, you would make a really good strategic planner. And he thumped his chest and he goes, that's my job. And so what he had done was he had, in a sense, typecast himself into a role in which he was making huge amounts of money uh, as a strategic planner. Now, why did I say that? Well, the frontal lobes of the brain are the association cortex. And if you have mountains of alpha there, you can make creative associations between existing data and project that into the future. And that's the essence of a gifted strategic planner. And so his deviant brainwaves were the basis of his profession and his great wealth. So is it fair to say what you're describing is someone that I would call a vivid visionary? Well, the thing is that that's a wonderful description. Uh, the people who never had a vision in their life before uh, come out of the even the Alpha One training after the first week and they would be what you just described as a vivid visionary. I can tell you another story of a businessman who was a commercial artist. And he had a company that he had grown over 20 years to be a half billion dollar a year company. And he was the source of images which went into production, uh, mainly figurines and, uh, uh, and, and, and paintings, postcards, things like that. Um, he had a line in Hallmark cards, for example. And um, 
he had over these 20 years, he had quantified so that he averaged 80 images a year that were good enough to go into production. A 20 year average of 80 images per year. Well, in the six weeks following his Alpha One training, he did 120 images and that went into production. And that didn't count the weekends where one weekend he made 25 big acrylic paintings, like four feet by six feet. People who watched him said the paint was just flying off his brushes. They were, you know, studies of like spheres and cubes and things like that. They, uh, but 25 big acrylic paintings in a weekend and 120 uh, uh, images good enough to go into production in six weeks versus a, a 20 year average of 80 per year. Creative visionaries, turn on the alpha, you turn on the creativity and it comes out in whatever your field is. Although I have had lawyers who were logical, analytical and verbal uh, suddenly become writing poetry after their alpha trainings. It's still in the verbal area, but now there's a flair for visionary creativity. Well, it's very interesting because when I, when I'm working with executives and we're talking about imperfection and openness and vulnerability, we've many times come across a conversation where I bring up intuition management and, you know, all the cliches that we hear that we, as a young girl, I remember, you know, listen to your gut and, and learning about the connection of the brain with the stomach and, you know, in between having the heart aligned. So as far as intuition management goes, what advice or experience have you had with an executive or a leader who might be listening to the show today that it's okay sometimes that we listen to our gut because maybe that's really the way we should be headed. Well, uh, going back to uh, the beginning where I was talking about how Rene Descartes dreamed up uh, science and declared famously cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, <clears throat> intuition got banned, at least from the male world. If you had an intuition and you were a man, the most you would be allowed to admit was I had a gut feeling or I had a hunch. But intuition, no, no, that was a, a province of women. And so one of the things that is important to do is to resurrect that word, to dignify it, to restore it to the importance that it should have in everyone's life and that it can have when they have enough alpha waves. It turns out that in alpha, now see alpha is related to creativity. There's two different kinds of creativity. One, all creativity is rare. Uh, the alpha creativity is the less rare of the two. The theta creativity is the more rare. And in, uh, in fact, the creativity is so important uh, uh, that it goes, uh, that's been well studied. There are four steps of the alpha creativity. One is learning the data in your field. What are the good problems? It's called paying your dues. The second stage is you pick a problem and you incubate on it. And then the third stage is the illumination stage, the eureka, I found it. And then the fourth stage is the verification stage where you take this insight, this illumination, uh, this intuition that came to you uh, and you verify it. You'd go back to your bench or your office or your lab and you test it out, see how good it is. And so what happens is in alpha, and I don't know that I've ever described this in, in writing anywhere, but in alpha, 
you have access to all the information that you were ever exposed to, most of it forgotten. And to solve this problem, you need information. And so if you were previously exposed to the information, when you're in a high alpha state, your brain goes out and takes one piece of information from column A, another piece from column M, and another piece from column Q, and it assembles them in a novel way that solves the problem. And then Eureka, I found it. Here's the, here's the solution. Now, that ability to go out into the vast storehouse of your uh, memories, even bringing forth things that you forgot, is a unique gift in alpha. Now, it turns out that creative people and normal people do not differ in their resting brain waves. So in the mid-80s, Colin Martindale brought together a group of creative people, and then he age and demographically matched them to other people from their communities. And he brought them all into the lab and measured their brainwaves individually, and he found no difference. But then when he gave the people problems to work on, the normals sat there in their normal brainwave state and did only as well as normals usually do. And the creative people immediately turned on high alpha all over the head. And within this high alpha state, they quickly and effectively solved the problems in a manner that distinguished them as creative people. And so Colin Martindale said, creativity is simply a matter of having the right brainwaves. Now he actually undertook to train people in alpha, but he didn't know I mean, there's a hundred dozen ways to do it wrong. I've spent over five decades learning how to do it right. And so he shot himself in the foot by not being able to teach people how to increase their alpha brainwaves, which was the state of, of most people, especially in the early years where they didn't know the methodological requirements for effective alpha training. Now, in terms of the theta creativity, uh, the alpha works fine as long as you have somewhere in your experiential repertoire data bits that are uh, can be assembled into the creative synthesis. But what happens if the information to solve the problem is not known to you? Or maybe it's not known to any human in your time period. Well, then you have to access the Akashic records, which you do in theta brainwaves. Now, um, we had, uh, I, I know he, he died in 1945. He was called the Dreaming Saint, uh, Casey. Uh, and uh, he would uh, lie down, fold his hands across his chest and start to fall asleep. He'd go into a theta state and then he would come up with answers. People would, they became to be called readings. And even though he was a devout Christian, he was a Sunday school teacher and, and a dedicated uh, husband and parent, uh, he, he did eventually come to understand that the source of information was the Akashic records. Akasha is a Sanskrit word, which means primordial substance. It's an energetic database of all knowledge that was, is, and ever will be. And uh, in Theta, you can access this database. Now, lest people think that this is new age mumbo jumbo, I want to point out that a household name scientist known to everyone Thomas A. Edison, Thomas Alva Edison, had developed a pre-brainwave uh, feedback technology for accessing the Akashic Records. And he used this technique to pull information for more than 1,000 patents out of the Akashic Records. 
the method was simple, maybe a bit brutal on his body, but he would sleep only four hours a night in two stretches, guaranteeing that he'd be tired to the point of exhaustion during the day. Then, while thinking of some problem that he wanted to solve or something he wanted to invent, he would lie in a recliner chair, hold a steel ball bearing in each hand, drape the hands over the arms of the chair with a metal pie plate under each hand, and then while thinking of what he wanted to invent, he would try to fall asleep. Easy because he's so sleep deprived. Well, as soon as he hits theta, he loses his grip, or uh, physiologists would say he'd lose postural tonus, and the steel ball bearings would fall with a clattering din, wake him up, he would grab his pencil and write down a little piece of whatever it was that came through. Then he'd get, grab the ball bearings, lean back in the chair and fall asleep again. And in this way, he would progressively access theta and pull forth from the Akashic records sufficient information for over a thousand patents. So anyone who says uh, Akashic records is new age mumbo jumbo, I just point them to Alva Edison, Thomas Alva Edison and say, well, you know, we have a thousand patents in the U.S. Uh, a patent inventory because of Edison's ability to access the Akashic Records. So we have alpha creativity and we have theta creativity. If you'd like, I have another story I could share about theta creativity. Absolutely. Go ahead. Okay. Um, this is maybe goes back to about 1800 or so when benzene had become an important industrial solvent. Uh, it's a hydrocarbon. Um, and uh, it was uh, hard to find uh, naturally. And so the new science of organic chemistry had their moonshot project, which was let's synthesize benzene. And uh, a, I believe Flemish organic chemist named Kekulé became obsessed with this problem. And he would spend long days in his laboratory working on synthesizing benzene. The formula was known, it was C6H12, six carbon atoms, uh, and 12 hydrogen atoms, but he, he wasn't able to synthesize it. And so uh, he would take the last, he worked late, take the last tram home, uh, have a big meal, and then drowse in front of the fire. Well, he began to see furry balls playing, besporting themselves in the fire, moving around. Now, this was, I mean, he'd grown up in a, you know, pre-electricity world, uh, and so he had fireplaces since he was a, an, a, an infant, but he'd never seen furry balls in the fireplace before. And so the, this became, you know, a, a fascination for him. He'd look forward to after dinner, drowsing in his armchair in front of the fire and watching the furry balls. Well, uh, now a tennis ball is a furry ball, but each piece of fur is exactly trimmed to the same length. Kekulé's furry balls were sort of, they were, they were round, but they had sort of indistinct edges. They sort of fuzzed out into indistinct uh, nothingness, uh, and it wasn't exactly clear where they ended. But as they moved around, occasionally they would bump into each other, and sometimes they would stick. So over the weeks, uh, they began to form chains, which would undulate through the fire. And one night, when uh, the, he was watching this, the uh, chains of furry balls became playful and started to play crack the whip and one of them cracked the whip so hard that the two ends spun around and stuck forming a ring and he counted the balls one two three four five six and he had a flash and he realized that 
the structure of benzene is six carbon atoms in a ring, and then each one has two hydrogen atoms off, stuck off, off of it. With this knowledge, he rushed back to the lab, performed the experiments, and was able to synthesize benzene. Now, what was he seeing? Well, as a former physics major, uh, I would submit to you that this is exactly what you would see if you used an electron microscope, not available in 1800, to look at atoms. They would look like furry balls with indistinct edges. The cloud of electrons around a nucleus would not have a sharp end uh, or edge. And so I would submit that what Kekulé was seeing by his passion and his drowsy theta state, he was pulling out of the Akashic Records information as to the structure of a molecule. And that, by the way, he had to be able to visualize atoms in the process. And so he had desire, expectation, and he merged in theta and uh, pulled out the information he needed to uh, invent uh, to synthesize benzene. I can imagine that I could probably sit here all evening and I can't even imagine how many stories you have. So I'm going to end my podcast with what I call the Fab Four. And these are just kind of short one word answers, whatever's sitting on the top of your mind. Share with us your favorite place to visit on Earth. Inside my mind. I knew you were going to say that. I, <laughs> When I, when I did that question, I thought I know exactly what he's going to say. <laughs> Tell us what inspires you. Helping other people to reduce suffering and to expand awareness. I love that. I really love that. Tell us something that's on your bucket list that's next to be checked off. Um, well, one time I had an opportunity to provide the technology to a group of 30 Zen monks who wanted to be in retreat for a year uh, and do brainwave training every day. Uh, they had somebody to provide the retreat center. They had enough money to pay for one of my systems. Um, and the whole project faltered because they didn't have anyone to donate the food for 30 monks for a year. So uh, through our nonprofit, the Integrated Mind Research Institute, we would like to do that study and to provide uh, brainwave training for 30 Zen monks every day for a year. That's amazing. We're just, we just, you know, my, my favorite Sanskrit word for intention is Sankalpa. So let's just put that up right there. We just did it. It's out there now. Yep. What do you want your legacy to be? Um, well, legacy is a strange thing because on February 9th of 1991, there was a paper in Science Magazine that identified for the first time the existence of a human immortality gene. It's on chromosome number one. And uh, although you could still, you know, based of this gene means that you wouldn't have to leave. And so to me, legacy means something that is left after you leave your body. And I know that it's scientifically possible not to do that. In fact, if I may, cancer activates the, this gene. Uh, oncologists refer to cancer cells as immortalized cell lines. Uh, 
because if you feed them nutrient solution, they'll grow and grow and grow and they'll never die. Now they kill the host by hogging, you know, the blood supply and, you know, growing too fast, but in there are two genetic switches. One is the Dr. Hayflick limit switch, which says that human cells can only divide about 50 times, 50 passages, and then they don't divide accurately anymore. And there's the rate of division switch. So if we could modify cancer so that it would not throw the rate of division switch, so cancer cells wouldn't divide rapidly, and it only through the Hayflick switch on the number of divisions allowed, everybody would want to have this kind of cancer and we would have biological immortality. Now we'd either have to severely limit breeding or go out to the planets and stars, uh, but that's fine too. Well, I have to say that is probably the best interesting answer I've had on legacy, but I expected nothing less from you. <laughs> I, I want to thank you for being a guest on the show today and for sharing your time and expertise. And I like to end the show with my list of five things to lead a purposeful life. Follow your heart, have passion, do your best, know your truth, and always be in love with the journey. This is Deb Crow. Thank you for joining us once again on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast.